Father in heaven, Lord, um, uh, you do come to us and you ask us a really profound question. Do we want to be well? And uh, Lord, I pray that we would be able to sing the chorus of that song uh, when we leave here tonight. So Lord, convince us of your goodness and convince us of your power. Do this through your word and through your spirit, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, it's flu season, and uh, uh, it's and it's one of my it's my one of my least favorite, if not my least favorite time of the year. Uh, I, I have two huge phobias in life. Uh, the biggest one by far is uh, vomiting, throwing up. Um, I, I would be classified as a absolute nightmare of a patient uh, because I think irrationally and I lack compliance. Um, and if I see someone throw up, I will run for the hills. If I feel like I need to vomit, I will uh, psych myself out and be utterly miserable instead of getting sick. But the lesser of my two phobias, other than vomiting, is needles. I've never been a big fan, and uh, they always freaked me out. And uh, the worst one was uh, the one I got over and over and over again as a child. It was for strep throat. And uh, I'd come to find out later, uh, as an older child, that uh, the strep throat needle is the, one of the biggest needles that they have in the pediatrician's office. And uh, it would take three or four adults, my mom, two or three uh, uh, people working at the clinic, to hold me down to give me the shot. And one time, after going back to school with a bout of strep and um, followed by the, by the death blow, the shot, um, I was telling my friend about it. And I'll, I'll never forget his response when I told him that I had strep throat and I'd got a shot. He, he asked me this question. He says, uh, you know you don't have to get a shot when you get strep throat, right? You know you can take a pill. And I, my, I'm sure my mouth was on the floor. And what I had realized is my mom had pulled this option off the table, and I knew exactly why. Because my friend told me uh, that if you get the pill, it takes you about 24 hours longer to get better than it does with a shot. See, my mom wanted me to get better, even if it meant I had to endure more pain. I think she also wanted me out of her hair uh, and back into school. But um, I, I, see, the, the truth is, when I had sore throat, I didn't care about my sore throat. Um, I didn't care about having a fever because I got to watch movies, eat popsicles, and most importantly, I didn't have to go to school. See, I, I preferred my sickness over my health. Now, you're, this example of my childhood is really pretty funny now. I've grown out of the sphere of needles a little bit. I haven't out of vomiting, but out of needles I have. And, um, but I've not grown out of preferring my sickness over my wellness. It's a part of the fallen human condition. Our sinful nature has become like our beloved childhood blankie. We would rather keep what we know instead of moving on to something that actually works. We've grown so accustomed to having a fever that it's the new normal of our life. Something has to happen in our hearts to wake us up to the destruction of our illness. Something has to happen for us to see that wellness is not just better, but also possible. And we'll see in our text in John 5, uh, we'll see this today. And I picked this passage because I've just seen myself in this passage as I've looked at it for the last several months. I find myself not to be Jesus in this passage, uh, but to be the invalid. Uh, so let's read it together. John 5, uh, verses 1 to 17. After this, uh, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, 
in Aramaic, it's called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed. And he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. The Word of the Lord. So you see right there in verse 1, uh, Jesus has come to Jerusalem and he's uh, come uh, not to go to this place of the colonies, but he's come, uh, to, uh, he's come for this Jewish feast. And this feast wasn't like uh, the feast that you had at, at Grandma's. This was a, a religious in nature. And this was at the church. And the church for Jesus was the Jewish temple. And within this temple complex, there was a lot more going on there than just one structure called the temple. It was, there was a complex. And close to the, the complex was this pool. And this pool was called, uh, in our text, it's called Bethesda. This, 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 this pool, Bethesda, had five uh, large columns around it. it. It formed kind of a pentagon of sorts. and had a roof on top. And there were steps going down to the pool. And on these steps, underneath the roof, there were, uh, the, 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 our text says, invalids. And he gives the, the kind of invalids there were. There were the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. And see, they were there because this provided shelter from the sun. This is in Jerusalem. This is in the Middle East. And so they had shelter from the sun, and they had the coolness of the water available to them. But it had much more than just this kind of these kind of physical uh, the, 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 the shelter from the sun and the water. This also represented a place of hope for them, because occasionally this pool would bubble up, and the disabled uh, attributed the movement in the water to an angel stirring the pool, and they thought the first to get in the pool, when it was stirred, would be healed. So here you have a community of needy people pinning their hopes on this superstition. And right there in verse 5 says that there's a particular person from among this motley crew. And this particular person was a man who had been an invalid for 38 years. We're not sure if it was 38 years, if he was 38 years old, or if he was born, and born this way, or if he was 60 years old and he became an invalid when he was in his 20s. But regardless... The average lifespan for a male was right at 40. So this man literally had been disabled for a lifetime. And right when we are introduced to this man in verse 5, we see from verses 16 to 17 that there are really four movements 
in his relationship between Jesus and the disabled man. These four movements are this. There's the invitation, the barter, the grace, and the incomplete response. The invitation, the barter, the grace, and the incomplete response. Verse 6, the invitation. Uh, this, uh, This invalid doesn't find Jesus. Rather, Jesus finds him. And the text right there in verse 6 says that Jesus saw him. Jesus saw him. Now when you see that and I see that, we just think eyesight, right? But the word for see means so much more than eyesight. What it means is understood. So you could translate it, Jesus understood him. Now you might think that's a slight difference, but I think it's important. Jesus didn't just look through this man. He didn't just look at this man or didn't even look around this man. He saw into him and he understood him. What most people thought was just a disabled man, Jesus didn't. Jesus saw outwardly he was disabled and he took that to heart, but he saw so much more. And I think for you and me, this should kind of give us the touchy feelies. We should be able to see that Jesus sees us and he understands us. Because Jesus' knowledge, it was infinite. And his infinite knowledge became very personal in this glance into the soul of this man. Jesus, in fact, had found what he was looking for in Jerusalem. But Jesus' understanding would not allow him to be naive. Look at his question. His question is profound, isn't it? It says, do you want to be well? I mean, if if, if you were this man, if if you had been invalid for 38 years, wouldn't you feel insulted? Of course. Of course, he would say, I'd rather be able-bodied than confined to a life of limitations. But remember, Jesus understood him. He understood that there's much more to life than common sense. Jesus understands that the human heart is involved. And the human part is a, is, a, is, a, is a complex matrix of thoughts, feelings, motivations, longings, and memory. There's so much more than meets the eye going on with this invalid, this invalid and Jesus understood it. The truth of the matter for this man is that he preferred his sickness. We do too, don't we? Have you become content with the sickness that resides in your own soul? Haven't you lost desire and hope that healing is actually possible? It's true for me because growth and change and healing mean that we lose control, that we lose predictability. You know the invalid sitting there thinking, he's saying, I I, I don't know how to do life as a healed man. How am I going to function? How, how am I going to enter this world of able-bodied folks? Am I going to be able to hack it? What does this mean for you? What does your sickness look like? And why do you prefer it over the possibility for your health? Do you prefer, prefer your poor relationship with eating rather than having a right relationship with food? Do you prefer being right over saying you're sorry? 
Do you prefer maintaining your reputation rather than standing up for Jesus? Do you prefer your addiction to a substance over sobriety? Do you prefer your anxiety over trust? Do you prefer your quick outbursts of anger over patience? We could go on and on. But the blunt question that Jesus asks is profound. Do you want to be well? This invitation that Jesus extends to this invalid is the one that he's asking you tonight. It's the one that he's been asking me since Tuesday. Do you want to be well? We see this next response. You'd expect to be real clean, wouldn't you? Uh, the invitation, hey, do you want to be well? And he says, yes, absolutely. But it gets, uh, it's more nuanced than that. Uh, the, the, the invalid, the darkness in his heart comes right out. And we see it as he's bartering with Jesus. It's really subtle. Do you see it? He says, sure, I'd love your help. And this is what you can do for me. You're going to take me down into the water. And after he says, tells Jesus how he's going to heal him, he throws a pity party over the fact that no one has taken taking him down there over the last 38 years. See, the invalid is willing to partner with Jesus, which is quite different than surrendering to Jesus. It's the difference between saying, help me get my salvation, and you are my salvation. A person of faith would not have to draw up plans for his own salvation. A person of faith allows the object of their faith tell them how the healing is going to take place. But this is what we all do, isn't it? When we come to faith, perhaps when we come back to faith, our life somehow not going the way we want. Our, our career has taken a turn for the worse. Our marriage is falling apart. Our kids have run, run amok. We don't get Mr. Right. We don't get Mrs. Right. We're in a personal financial crisis. There's been a death to someone close to us. And now what are we going to do? Oh, I'll get Jesus to partner with me. See, we go back to church and we draw up how Jesus is going to help us. We're essentially saying, Jesus, help me get to the water and I'll be glad to partner with you. We tend to see Jesus as a means to an end rather than an end in himself. Uh, David uh, says something really profound in Psalm 43. He says, you are my joy. You are my joy. He's referring to God. And when our hearts are so enamored by Jesus, we're going to say, if I have you, then I don't need to get in the water. I can go without a soulmate, the perfect job, the perfect group of friends, financial security, or the approval of my parents. Why? Because I have you. In our whole lives, we're transitioning from being content with the things Jesus gives us to being content with just Jesus. We transition from negotiating with Jesus to surrendering to Jesus. This is the barter. Now we see the grace. Uh, if I were Jesus, I, I, I don't know. I think I might have kicked the guy down into the pool. <laughs> but he doesn't. 
And Jesus doesn't agree to the terms given by this invalid. Uh, he doesn't agree to his terms. He doesn't acquiesce to the invalid and carry him down the stairs to the water when the water is stirred. But he also doesn't walk away from him and refuse to heal him. You see how he heals him? He heals him by his word alone. There's no mention of faith on the part of the healed man. In fact, what we discover later in the narrative is that Jesus didn't even introduce himself. Jesus doesn't say, hey, uh, I'm Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and I have the ability to heal you. He just comes up to me asking this question, do you want to be well? And as far as the healed man's concerned, this is just a normal dude who didn't have the power to do things by simply commanding them to be done. So we see Jesus' power here in this exchange, but we also see his rich grace. Jesus heals him. Jesus is also not convinced that he actually wants to be healed. Jesus heals him even though he wants to partner with Jesus instead of letting Jesus outline the terms of his salvation. But this is the nature of Jesus. On one hand, he's more powerful than we ever give him credit for. And on the other hand, he's more gracious than we ever imagined. He takes the initiative, doesn't wait for the man to approach him, and doesn't heal him the way that he wants him to. But he heals him anyway. And this is what Jesus does to us. His movement in our life, it confuses us. It bristles against our natural inclination. He makes us terribly uncomfortable. He surprises us on one hand and accommodates to us on the other. See, don't we say things to Jesus like, hey, help me get the grades I want? And then he actually does. But then he does something after that in our lives that makes sure that we know that, we, that, that he's not going to let us carry out the wonderful plan that we have for our life. We say to Jesus, help me parent, and he actually does. But then he might throw a wrench in our lives that makes parenting seem like the least of our worries. We say, get me out of hell and into heaven, and he actually grants our request. But he pursues us to convict us of sin and apply grace to the deepest places of our hearts. Jesus has immense grace on this man. But in the last, from, verse, from the second half of verse 9 to 15, uh, we see a really incomplete response. It leaves the story without a happy ending. The man goes away from Bethesda, and some Jewish leaders, they notice him. And they notice that he's carrying his mat on the Sabbath. Now, carrying one's mat, you might say, well, what's the big deal? Well, it was against the rules uh, to carry your mat on the Sabbath, according to the Jewish leaders. And this former invalid, when he's confronted on this, uh, he's asked, who, who, uh, why are you carrying your mat? He says, hey, the guy who healed me told me to pick it up. And they ask, well, who's the person who told you to take up your mat. Now, time out here. The guy, uh, the invalid just tells these Jewish leaders that he was healed, but they're more concerned about who told you to take up your mat instead of the person who healed you. That's legalism at its best. I digress. I had to bring that out. But the, the man... Um, he has no idea who healed him. So he, he, he goes on his way, and guess what? He leaves this exchange where the, where, where the Jewish leaders say, hey, who healed you? And he says, I don't know. He turns this way, and guess who finds him? Jesus. 
Jesus finds him a second time. And look what Jesus tells him. Jesus says something that I find a bit cryptic. He said, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. What does Jesus mean? I think Jesus is speaking to, 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 to this man on a heart level. I think he knows that this man hasn't changed on the inside at all. He can walk, but he's still hard-hearted. There's no expression of gratitude or appreciation for his healing. He was happy to have his legs restored, but he appears to be totally indifferent towards Jesus and content to let the authorities do with Jesus whatever they want. So what are we supposed to do with this? If this doesn't end uh, with a happy ending, if this leaves with an incomplete response, how are we supposed to interpret a story like this? Really, as I was was thinking about this week, what what text would I preach? I honestly thought about leaving there at the end of of verse 9, or at the the middle of verse 9. I really wanted to stop, and at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Why? Because the second half of verse 9, verse 17... I didn't know what to do with that. I was so captured by, do you want to be well? I couldn't see the rest of the story. But then I began to think about the other ways that Jesus interacted with people in the Gospels. Sometimes in the Gospels, people do leave, their, leave Jesus' presence and everything's tied up pretty nice. The Samaritan woman, she leaves, she tells the whole, woman, the whole village that she's been healed. That she's received this living water from Jesus. You've got the demoniac in Mark chapter 5. Jesus cast out all his demons. He goes back into his village and tells them all who, 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 who cast out the demons. But then there's other stories. Stories like Luke 17. In Luke 17, Jesus heals ten lepers, but only one returns to say thank you. What do you do with the other nine? What about the rich young ruler who came to Jesus? He's looking for eternal life. And Jesus says, the only way you're going to get eternal life is if you sell all that you have. And the rich young ruler refuses to sell all that he has. And the text says that he left sad. But then we have this one in John 5. A man's healed on the outside, but it appears that this work is incomplete, that his heart remains unchanged. Uh, recently, I was uh, with an old friend, old high school friend, and they asked this question. They said, um, isn't the point of church and Jesus uh, to make people better? And I asked him, what do you mean by better? And it, became pretty, it, it became evident that he meant a, a more moral person, a, a kinder person, a more sacrificial person. Essentially, he was just saying that Jesus and the church were supposed to partner with us to make us a better version of ourselves. And they do so by giving good examples. There's good people in the church, and there's good people in the Bible, and Jesus is a really, really good person. But if this was the Bible's message, the message of the Bible would be God saves the worthy. Then you would have in the Bible a book full of people who are faithful. But we don't have a book full of people who are faithful. We have a book full of people like the healed man at the Bethesda who did not seek God's grace, who did not deserve God's grace, and did not appreciate God's grace. But that's what makes it grace. 
And what's required of us is to stop trying to earn grace, stop looking for tips on how to get Jesus to bless us, and to throw ourselves at God's mercy. How about you? In what ways have you been like this healed man at Bethesda? How have you tried to get Jesus to join your team so that you can achieve your goals? Conversely, maybe you're mad at Jesus because you expected him to help you meet your goals and he hasn't. Do you think him to be a bad teammate? How about this one? How have you received God's grace and then you've run off leading an ungrateful life? Friends, what Jesus wants to do is a very deep work in your life. He can accommodate to your felt needs, but he really wants to go deeper with you. He wants to go deeper with you. He wants to forgive your sin. He wants to, he wants to heal your pain and he wants to make you whole. And his admonition to you is the same as it was to the man of Bethesda. Don't keep on sinning by not desiring the deeper work. See, Jesus lived the life we should have lived, and he died the death we should have died, and he did so that we, not, not just that we could get out of hell and into heaven, he did it because the good news has worked deeper and deeper in our lives so that we might become grateful people. So let me ask you. Do you want to be well? Let's pray. Lord, I, I do feel like more of a skeptic than a cynic. I feel like more like a skeptic than a witness. I sit by the water and I'm afraid to get in, but you keep asking me the question. So, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would change our hearts, that we might prefer your healing over our sickness. Do this, we ask. In Christ's name, amen.